Welcome to Film Fight Club. I'm Glenn Falcon, Cyber Falcon Screen, and we are joined as always by freelance writer and critic Virat Nehru. Hello, hello. And Sydney filmmaker Chris Evans. Woo! The things we do for movies. So, so many movies. It is the last day of the festival. We will be doing a bit of a festival wrap before our final festival wrap on Wednesday and talking about some of the best things at the festival. What you have... Some of the worst, some of the worst, because it wouldn't be Film Fight Club without relentless cynicism. And some of the things you'll be able to see at the special screenings in the coming days and in the months following, cinematic releases, the things you just seek out because they are generally awesome. But also we should like to plug some of the interviews we've done because it's been a fantastic festival and some of the interviews have been fantastic. The festival guests have been fantastic. I did one with Nanita Dast, director of Manto, which has come direct from Cannes. It's screening Sunday night at the Opera Keys, tonight at the Opera Keys. So fantastic film. Uh, do check it out. Farad's been trying to get us to listen to that one, and I would if I had any moment at all of spare time. Um, we've been operating on minimal sleep, and uh, everything in life gets delayed until after the festival. Um, but you can check out my, my interviews with a lot of directors on Cellulite Dreams page. Particularly, I'd encourage you to seek out the one for uh, my favorite of the films that I got to do an interview for, Samoy Song with Panek Radnarung. Um, the Censored interview that we mentioned last interview was also really great. Um, I think Holiday with Isabella Ekloff. And another interesting one, I think, um, was the director of The Great Buddha Plus, which was done through a, um, a translator who volunteered his time, which I really appreciate. Um, so, yeah, seek out some of these interviews if you'd like some more insight on some of the films that are in competition. Yes, please do. I'm averaging, I think, four hours a night, maybe less, but it has been glorious fun. And that is what festivals are all about, particularly the Sydney Film Festival. Are you going to check out my interview with um, Argo, producer, editor, and director Vasilka Kuryakova and Milko Lazarov, who are in town from Bulgaria, as well as an interview with producer Ant Timpson, of, who's made some outstanding films, including The ABCs of Death, for The Field Guide to Evil, which is screening over the weekend. And also in terms of plugs for Rut, you have a big uh, event coming up later this afternoon. Yes, I'll be introducing a film, like a proper introduction on the stage everything, and moderating Q&A with the director. So I'm introducing an Indian film called Mesampur, which is playing at 4.15 at Dendi Opera Keys this afternoon. Uh, so if you're in the audience, give me a shout out or be kind to me and ask a good and nice question with the director. Right, you have the momentum of Runaway Freight Train. Why are you so popular? Uh, maybe because I have the charm and the face, which is also maybe some skills. I don't know. Uh, I don't, skills are debatable, but definitely the charm and the face. You have a face for radio, definitely. Oh, and <laughs> since I wasn't clear enough before, I should do shout-outs to Leon Guan, who volunteered to translate our Huang um, Yao interview for um, Great Buddha Plus. Justin, he needs to, his name needs to be out there on the radio because this guy did a, a really good translation for me for nothing. So, yeah, good on you, Leon. Good on you, Leon. And if you are around the hub, come join us on the wonderful last day of this festival. It has been especially packed. We'll be running through throughout this episode several, many of the films that have screened that we like, that we didn't like so much that will be screening in cinemas in the coming months. The first film we are talking about is Three Faces, the new Jafar Panahi film, which is one of the big releases of the festival. And uh, the director could not be here for reasons we will go into. Uh, we all saw this at the State Theatre last night. This is uh, The director has been under house arrest for quite some time. He made Terror on Taxi previously. This is now a road trip movie, so what? Uh, instead he isn't currently under house arrest, but he's still banned from making films. Is that right? Yeah, he's still banned from making films, but they're getting so much international um, recognition these days that I think at most he gets a slap on the wrist for every new film he makes, but he's still not allowed to leave the country, so he wasn't able to receive his Best Screenplay Award that I think he richly deserved that he won at Cannes. 
there's a wonderful uh, uh, a shot where he arrives at the airport and they present him with his award, which is actually quite lovely. I think it was well-deserved. Let's talk about Three Faces. Okay, look, it's, it's weird that Chris talked about how cynical and, and, you know, fighting we are, but Three Faces is the most mushy film of this festival. I mean, there's something about Jafar Panahi's style of filmmaking, which is very warm and cuddly, that makes me feel less cynical about life. It's really weird because he makes film in Iran and given the context, it is the most kind of depressing and bleak place on the planet. And yet his films are very hopeful and they make you feel and look forward to life and these characters that he wants to say. So it's, it's almost, you know, the most warm and non-cynical thing as a critic. It makes me feel like, you know what? I like mushy cinema and it makes me feel really, really hopeful about the world. So this film, just to give us a brief outline, is regarding a young woman in the opening frames who tapes a message for our director who plays himself in the film. And this causes him and another person to go on a road trip throughout rural Iran to find out the origin of this film and of this person. This is, I think as Virat alluded to, a hopeful film. Uh, I was most fascinated by the way it was shot. There were lots of long tracking and engaging shots. I think some of them did linger a little bit too long. But in terms of, it felt like elements of theatre where you're allowed to hang with a character for an exponential amount of time, which you'd often see with films which rely on extremely quick cuts and certainly all too often. Um, there was a hyper-realistic element to this film, which I appreciated, and which is certainly an element of the director inserting himself in the film. Uh, the, however, I will say, the big reveal, which takes place about half an hour, halfway into the film, which a lot of this film rested on, I feel could have been dealt with or handled later. I feel the intrigue, which was leading up to it, was the most fascinating part of the film, and while I did enjoy the latter half to an extent, I feel the first for that reason was significantly stronger. But I'm interested to hear what Chris has to think, because I know this was a highlight for him. For me, this was the highlight. I think this is the best film I've seen at the festival and um, possibly go, very possibly going to be the best film I've seen all year. Um, I think a lot of people are going to be thrown by this film because it uses this initial thriller setup, but that is really subverted later on as it sort of t- turns into more of a slice of life. And um, very much the point of this film is the initial complication being resolved by people outside the central protagonist, who is Panahi himself, arguably, you know, behind the scenes. He's more of an observer character. And the film is about stitching together his view on a lot of people in this village. Um, I found this to be so incredibly beautiful. I agree with what Virat said about how it's it's really, really life-affirming. Um, it's a movie about how truth is always obstructed, that... Um, we can never see how things really are because of our own um, biases and our own cultural ties. But nonetheless, I, I think um, even though Panahi doesn't spare criticism for backwards ways of thinking, he still manages to see the humanity in all of his characters and have empathy for them. Um, and I think it's also really a movie about how, in spite of all this messy humanity and uh, mistakes that people are making, there's so much beauty going on and it's really important that we don't let other people or um, obstructions that are in our way from appreciating the beauty. Um, the way that this film is shot, for me, was mind-blowing. It's been done with clearly very little resources, yet there's so much creativity. There's visual wit in the way that characters pass across the frame and the timing. Um, it has two shots which are about tracking people um, once into the distance and then towards the camera, and another one which is you know along the horizontal plane, which... Uh, playing with light and shadow and are absolutely mind-blowing. Um, I, I also, with Glenn spoke about how this is very much about watching things 
happen slowly and staying with the camera. Um, I've watched a lot of art house films at this festival ascribing to this slow cinema tradition about watching people, you know, slowly moving and staying with the characters instead of cutting to speed along the narrative. And for the most part, I found it tiresome. It's amazing how Panahi makes you feel like you are there with the characters. And I felt like I, I was hanging off the frame. You know, I was always c- completely engaged as like as if the movie is just brimming with life so that I don't mind hanging with these characters as they go for a long walk or they sit back watching. I, I was just gripped by this film. But I, I know me and Verada and Chanel, my girlfriend, are pretty much the only people who had this positive reaction to it. The other responses I've seen have been like fairly tempered. Just quickly, I wanted to actually point out some really interesting things. Because uh, Panahi in this one, it's, it's a really interesting thing because Panahi is not only the director of this movie, he's also the subject while also being the object, which is a really interesting hybrid style of filmmaking. So even though he's critiquing other people and the characters in this film, he's also not beyond critique himself because he's also part of the subject. So it's a really different style of filmmaking. Yeah, he's the subject, yet he also allows himself to be like a really minor presence. He's, he's so generous to all of the other humanity around him. So that was Three Faces, a new Jafar Panahi film. The next one we are talking about is a very different one called Film Worker, which is about a man you may not have heard who was the man behind someone you have definitely heard of, Stanley Kubrick. This is about Leon Vitali, the production coordinator, designer, personal assistant to Kubrick on all his later films. He played the adopted son of Barry Lyndon in Barry Lyndon and then went on to work on and have crucial roles in The Shining, Eyes Wide Shut, Full Metal Jacket. Now, we saw Ready Player One earlier this year, which had a very big focus on a nostalgic element for The Shining. If you want real nostalgia for The Shining and for Stanley Kubrick, this is actually a film you want. But as with anything about Stanley Kubrick, it is an elusive documentary, which is a biography of him, but at the same time, a biography of this man who gave up a lot of his creative drive and personal creativity to work for one of the most infamously demanding figures in Hollywood. This is a film I feel for people who are interested in Kubrick, who isn't particularly a well-known figure so much outside of his uh, filmography. This definitely sheds a lot of light on his character and particularly some of the films later in his career. It's a really interesting film because, honestly, people know a lot about Kubrick, but this is actually, interestingly, not a film about Stanley Kubrick, but also mostly about how people receive Kubrick cinema, which is a very interesting... It's probably one of the best fan films out there in terms of how people receive Kubrick and engage with Kubrick cinema, and it's interesting how Kubrick is received differently, and just seeing one person's absolute passion and devotion to the cause. It's really, really... I think, lovely ode to Kubrick in that sense. What I appreciated about this was you see to a lesser and greater extent how subjects are dispersed in the documentaries. Vitaly had a refreshingly strong role in this as the members of his family. And other interviewees, Dylan Skarsgård, an absolutely superb performer who was incredibly frank in this movie, gave his assessment on Vitaly and some others. And it shed a lot of light for me on particularly one of probably my least favorite of Kubrick's post Paths of Glory films which is Full Metal Jacket which I'd be to appreciate that bit much more I think this is crucial recently we've seen a resurgence of Kubrick interest certainly at the Ritz there's been the long running festival and I think for Kubrick fans this is myself included Clockwork Orange is my favourite but there are many great ones this is a must see Glenn we have to fight about how Full Metal Jacket is one of your least favourite Kubrick films honestly I can't believe you just said that just get out of my face right now yeah I love it (laughs) When this show started, me and Virat seemed to constantly be at loggerheads. I just wanted to say loggerheads. Uh, but um, these days, we're disturbingly in line with each other. Everyone I speak to seems to not like Full Metal Jacket these days, but it's great, right? Um, it's. I, I think it's now 
Glenn, uh, sorry, Chris and me versus Glenn. It's the dynamic of the show is like changed. <laughs> I, I, I've noticed this. What's happened here, guys? Come on. But I, I will defend that. Full Metal Jacket. It's not a bad film. All these films are good, except I would put it as in my first. My three least favorite Kubrick films, I'll put them in the order of Full Metal Jacket, Lolita, and Killer's Kiss. Uh, so that's a fight for another episode, certainly. We are next. We are talking about a film I just saw at the State Theater. It's one of my highlights of the festival so far. That is Leave No Trace. It is starring Ben Foster and is directed by Deborah Granick, who made famously Winter Sponsing Years Back. It is about a father who is suffering from PTSD and takes his daughter... Um, off the grid to live in the American woods and we start learning a bit about their life and slowly later the inevitable intrusion of others into it who are not as satisfied with their life they choose to live. This is an abundantly moving, heartwarming film about a father-daughter dynamic and the what I find... I get frustrated very frequently with how symbolism is used in film and how it is overstated or heavy-handed. This uses it to such abundantly excellent effect. There is a sequence where uh, Ben Foster's character has to um, cut down Christmas trees and send them off to California for families to use. And this, more than anything else, shed light on this is exactly what the film is going for, the message, but it doesn't have to say it, it doesn't have to shove it in your face, it's just a passing element. As with so many of the other interactions of the film, this was very, very special. The beekeeping scene, for example, I think is also really touching at what this, this film is about. Um, but uh, I won't go into it because I don't want to spoil this movie completely. Uh, no, I, 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 liked, I enjoyed that sequence too. Some of the wilderness sequences. Foster, who since Hell or High Water has come up as a recurringly more interesting actor, I think we're seeing now him starting to get much more media roles. I'm certainly interested to see what he does next after this. I'm really sorry that I missed this one. I was having an epic winter sleep. I slept for 12 hours straight because of the festival fatigue. So, uh, and talking winter sleep, we're seeing the new Salon tonight. So I'm excited for that. But anyway... Uh, Talking about Ben Foster, it's interesting because I first noticed him when he played Lance Armstrong in that movie where Chris O'Dowd was also there. I don't know what he was doing in that movie, but Ben Foster as Lance Armstrong really made an impression because this wasn't an easy character to play. And this is after Armstrong's revelations as being, you know, Lance Armstrong, essentially. And uh, so it was a tricky role and he played it with a plumb. And I'm really happy to see that he's actually going from strength to strength. I really liked this film. Um, I think, yeah, Ben Foster was fantastic. I, I think I liked this more than the last film I've seen from Deborah Granick, which was, uh, I think, her debut feature film, um, which is Bone. For me, I think her visual style has evolved quite a lot. Um, that film seemed to be relying on these kind of cliches of handheld camera work and grittiness, whereas this, this I think, is um, more like patient and attuned to subtleties of character nuance. Um, it reminded me a lot of Kelly Reichardt's style, um, but also in terms of subject matter. Um, I, think, I think this film, as Glenn said, is really, really heartwarming. Um, it's very patient as far as American filmmaking goes. It allows its themes to sort of gradually build up. The one criticism I have is that around the middle of the film, as um, it takes a dramatic turn, um, I, I felt like there, was, there could have been more psychological depth to the way that the father is portrayed. Um, I, I think that that's one instance where the approach of um, restraint and le leaving the audience room to figure it out could have been lessened a little bit and um, it would have been a little bit more satisfying to me. But I feel like um, the way that this story resolves and um, the way that the dynamic between father and daughter and their clash of, of worldviews, her being able to live in the world and him being too damaged to be able to come to grips with 
not um, the expectations of society was really, really beautifully characterized. I thought also that this is a fantastic concept for a film, showing us something that I would not have imagined. You know, people living in the woods simply because that you know they've turned their back on society. The ending is very moving, and certainly uh, she she has an extremely defined character arc. I know what instance you're referring to, but I feel uh, the young actress uh, carried it to exceptional degree. Yeah, she was fantastic. Um, again, she could it could be a stomaching role for her as it, as um, Jennifer Lawrence got out of Winter's Bone. Who's uh, to say? Uh, Thomasina Richardson, I think her name was. Yeah, that's right. She was, um, you know, she really maintains this kind of deer-in-the-headlights look, the constant fear that's been drilled into her by her father, but nuances uh, start to slip through the cracks in that as the film proceeds. I think it's an excellent performance and direction from Deborah Granick that's really, really attuned to it. Yeah, look after her. We will be seeing more from this actress. Yes, and I think this is one of the best American films of the year. I would agree with that, but I'd say just to add finally that we saw a couple of years ago a similarly themed film at the festival with Viggo Mortensen, Captain Fantastic, which was also about a father taking his, in this case, children off the grid. Um, that was extremely heavy-handed in terms of him saying, no, they will be philosopher kings. I mean, actually, that's an actual quote there. This does not have that. It is much of subtle. I did certainly appreciate that. Talking of Captain Fantastic, it does remind me of that wonderful, wonderful scene about celebrating Noam Chomsky Day. Which is <laughs> and moving on to um oh dear um now this one uh I missed this one somehow um the image something the miss something book uh yeah I think everyone else though when le livre d'image from Jean Luc Godard okay we're about appreciating art here on Film Fight Club okay and the god of art Godard is here again. Yeah, I was watching uh, one of my fa- one of nice freak me out horror sections. I don't. I, I I'm not sure if I would have gone for this, but that, that really <laughs> illustrates the new dynamic of Film Fight Club, doesn't it? That's just it in a nutshell. But look, I wanted to make this joke before it becomes too old. Goddard for Glenn would definitely be a freak me out horror movie. <laughs> <laughs> I, I'm almost, almost tempted to watch this film now. That's what you'd explain exactly what this. Oh, can we call it a film? Is that what it was? Ah, look, I, I love whether or not it's a film. Um, I love that it's at the Sydney Film Festival. It, it's as other people have pointed out, it has more. Thank you very much. We're just being offered the wonderful free food here at the hub. Thank you so much. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. <laughs> okay. Uh, that was uh, that was very much like the image book, where whatever train of thought you're running with constantly gets interrupted by random cuts. Um, new bits of news footage, music. It's very much more like a museum piece or video art than a traditional film. But um, it's rare at the Sydney Film Festival that we get to see these kinds of works that challenge our ideas of what film could be. So I really appreciate that it's been programmed. Okay. Uh, trying to explain like the actual structural sensibility of the image book and what it's trying to do. So basically you have Goddard in his, sitting somewhere in his philosophy king room, or, you know, n- narrating... The demise of Western civilization. Isn't that all he does? Yeah, but it's interesting. I mean, it, it, when he got out of it, it's interesting. But also what is equally interesting is how he uses hyper-real sensibility in a surreal form, composing and juxtaposing different images together. Though I think this his visual style is still very strong. I mean, you can say something about his actual sensibility and his actual, you know, whether he's still senile or not. That can be debated upon, but it's very, very certain that his visual sensibility is still very intact. And it's very, I mean, what you leave with is basically this sort of 
uh, explosion, this kind of uh, beautiful submersion of images that you are bombarded with, literally. Because actually the sound design in this movie complements the visual style. It is literally something of a tactile, oral, and visual sort of sensory experience that you are just immerse yourself into. And it's actually a really interesting style that you actually go through because your body responds to a lot of this movie. Yeah, um, it's a mixture of clips from mostly older films as well as Godard's own filmography and news footage. And in the... uh, Sorry, there's running commentary running over that where Godard kind of makes suggestions as opposed to this being a coherent through the film... Um, now, you know, voiceover that's explaining what's going on. I think he's more just trying to give you something to latch onto and so that you make of what you will of the images. He's really talking about the way that we depict violence on screen, um, the way that depicting things on screen can be an act of violence. For example, the way that we've created this stereotypical image of the Arab world that doesn't allow for the nuances of understanding Arab people as real people. Um, and it's also about the way that cinema is used to create a false impression of the world. Um, and it touches on a lot of the, mostly through implication, but it touches on a lot of the tragedy of the 20th century, which is, you know, one of Goddard's favorite things to talk about these days. Um, it, it is, Goddard does acknowledge jokes about himself being uh, senile, or this being a bit of a rant. There's a, a great moment near the end of the film that manages for me to be both hilarious, yet oddly powerful and moving in the context of this, where his barrage of words turns into just a splutter. Um, with this film, he's and coughing fit over the soundtrack. He's really making the argument that film is really all about editing. It opens with a shot of him editing um, at, with his hands and talking about how you know, to be a person is about thinking with your hands. And uh, so by taking, he's managed to create, as Verrett said, something new and surreal by contrasting clips from other films and then manipulating them. That some of the, these are digitally glitched, colors are inverted or um, burned up into crazy saturation. And there are moments where that's really striking and the music just pounds at you. So it sounds like something that could be really boring and dry, but it held my attention all the way throughout and it left me with something to think about. So strong recommendation. Yeah, I mean, I mean, Goddard in, in that sense is it, it's really weird because he's at the same time, you know, above a lot of the stalwarts of cinema, and yet he's trying late Goddard, you know, this period of him where he doesn't really care about what people think of him, and yet at the same time is producing the kind of art which would alienate a lot of people is interesting in that form. So I think just for the virtue of the fact that this is something that actually got played. This is actually out there even from a festival point of view, which is really weird. Like, in the festivals are places where you embrace these kinds of movies and cinema. But even for that, I think this is actually an outlier. So I think it's really interesting in that sense. Even to festival for the Sydney Film Festival, that is the Image Book, the new John Locke. Good old, good old film, excuse me. The next one we are talking about, a little bit of a different tack, is the Dendi Awards. Every Actually, Lexus Short Film Awards, I just say, at Dendi. Every year, uh, for the past couple of years, they have produced... Of scholarships, so 50000 each, for four local filmmakers to produce short films, which then premiere at the festival next year and accompany the major screenings. And they announced the next four winners for the, for the Dendi Awards, this, sorry, for the Lexus Awards the other night. Um, I managed to see four of them, and uh, they've also been playing in addition to each of the screenings. Uh, I've, I couldn't recommend three, but there was one in particular I have to give a shout-out to, the Emily Avila film, 
fitting, which takes place entirely within a fitting room and is about a relationship between predominantly two women, uh, one of whom discovers soon that one recently uh, had surgery, unwent surgery for breast cancer. It is an incredibly moving film in the words of Avila of, quote, how women support each other. It is the model of what a short film should be. And I don't know if there'll be an opportunity to seek it out following the festival, but I strongly encourage people to do so, particularly if you're interested in producing short films yourself. Okay, so I didn't was not able to attend that night. However, I did see one of the short films in the competition last night before Three Faces called um, My Boy Oleg, and it was hilarious to see something that was the complete opposite of Panahi's sensibility in the worst possible ways before that film. Um, this was absolutely atrocious, in my opinion. It, it was a narrative-length fe- uh, storyline, like a feature-length narrative uh, that was condensed into 19 minutes. And so it felt like it was completely a hash where a storyline that features, you know, multiple subplots and takes place over years and features a large amount of characters is just rushing by in a hash of imagery um, where no scene has really any rhythm because it's so fast-paced and you never really feel like you get to know any of the characters. Um, So as soon as it started, I was thinking, what the hell is going on? This is just a blur. It, It feels like, you know, an action, like the art house drama um, miserabilism version of a Michael Bay action scene at his most indulgent. Um, but the way that the drama is is portrayed, because of, there's no room for any kind of nuance because of how fast it goes past, um, means that at the moment of... Uh, there was Okay, a, cru- a crucial point of the narrative, a scene that is clearly intended to emo- evoke big emotions, was met with laughter. And I, when I heard this laughter, wondered, was this intended to be a joke? Like, is this kind of like a Tropfest shot? It was not. Is this like a Tropfest shot ending on the big joke? But no, it turned out that they were actually really serious and this was meant to be real melodrama. Um, This was lacking in any redeeming feature at all. I would say this is actually one of the worst cinematic experiences ever. No, I did not. I didn't think it was a good film either. Also, notably, they had the main character interspersed throughout doing her performance art pieces to really belay the point of, so further the point of what she was trying to get across. But yeah, but really, that's a subplot. Why would anyone think that there's a room for a subplot when you're telling a story that spans like six years and trying to condense it into twenty minutes with twists and turns going along the way? Just not a movie that was made with the idea of a short film in mind. But we do encourage you to seek out the fitting. Those were the Lexus Short Film Awards. Next one we have. The one you shouldn't watch is called My Boy Oleg. <laughs> so the next film we're talking about, which is not a short film, is The Kindergarten Teacher. The new film from Sarah Colangelo, which is starring Maggie Gyllenhaal. It is a remake of an Israeli film. And it is about a kindergarten teacher, Lisa, played by Gyllenhaal, who d- begins a unhealthy obsession with one boy in her class who she believes is a prodigy and who, like her, has a great interest in poetry and at the drop of a hat in between these regular five-year-old activities produces a great deal of poetry. Now, this is a slow burner. It is a, a very predictable film. That is not so much a criticism. It goes in directions you probably believe it will go in, but it is a compelling drama regardless the best thing about the film and it's a strange thing to talk about we never talk about blocking on the show blocking is hugely important in terms of how you place a scene uh if you watch this film you will notice that every sequence with her with lisa and the young boy uh is in increasingly cramped quarters they increasingly crowd the frame as it becomes more difficult and unnerving to watch their, their relationship develop, whereas her with the other characters, they are set at and apart, and further so as she begins to drive, go further and further away from those other people who are also supposed to be important in her life. So in that respect, it is a very well-directed film. 
Uh, though Chris, I believe, also saw the kindergarten teacher as of yesterday. As of right, I believe, right? Yes, I did. And uh, actually, can I, can I just point out, I, I love it when Glenn goes full film nerd. Like, it's a very cute sight. It's like him just getting all, you know, bubbly and his hands do his thing where he just goes, oh, my God, blocking. And it, 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 it's a very beautiful sight. If you can see it in, if there was video right now, you would be, you'd just appreciate the true passion of movie making coming out. So, Glenn, talk about blocking some more. I, I, I would gladly talk about blocking in many, many films. Okay. Um, to talk, uh, because we're on a crazy rush schedule, we're trying to whip this out quickly before we rush to see Black Klansman. Oh my god, we're so excited. This is the big film of the festival. We are, we are, we are pumped. Um, the Kindergarten Teacher, I thought, is overall good. Starts off, um, look, I, I mean, I, I don't believe that um, there's a kid of this age who has this kind of access to poetry as depicted in this film, but I, I'm, I'm able to go with it because it's the premise, and I think it's a clever premise, watching the way that this woman, um, first of all, um, uses this boy's talent to try and further her own um, art, you know, dreams of being an artist. And also, um, it's a study of the way that somebody can have good intentions, but then go completely heavy-handed. And in, you know, a person who is unable to accept that other people choose to live their, their lives the way they want to, who, tries, who has maybe good ideals, but tries to impose them on other people at every step of the way. I like how she was contrasted with the father of the boy, who's somebody who's maybe too much in the other direction of not um, fostering this boy's interest in poetry, whereas she wants to completely make that the focus of his life. Um, two extremes, neither of whom is really in the right. I feel like the movie let itself down because there was a subtle creepiness to the way that she was taking things out of hand. Um, and then suddenly it takes a turn into a very Hollywood direction of which I think it would have taken a restraint to avoid the temptation to take the story in this direction because it's really pushing this to its extreme. But given that the rest of the film was operating on a more clever and subtle level, I felt that it was really not necessary and hampered my overall opinion of the film. Uh, Maggie Gyllenhaal's performance, actually, we should point out, it's a very difficult role. It's a very nuanced role. And she managed to evoke a lot of empathy for this character which is actually really difficult to do because it's a very unsympathetic character for a long long time and it's interesting in that sense about how you know I've had a lot of English teachers when I've grown up with and they've encouraged my artistic talent but uh, you know looking back at this movie I was just eerily sort of you know sent shivers down my spine a little bit as to whether or not they were somehow vicariously living their own dreams by furthering my talent in some ways. Not that they were. I'm not, I'm not, I'm not suggesting that. I hope for us old teachers aren't listening to this right now. I still love all of my English teachers. They were the best thing that happened to me. But at the same time, it's interesting in that sense about uh, this film is really, really interesting in how it develops the same notion of artistic talent and integrity and these very cerebral questions from a very humanistic lens. If you look at uh, the character Maggie, Lisa's family and what they feel about how they want to live their lives and what they feel about art and you can see the frustrations building in that tent. So as a slow burn, I really loved how the first half built up and there's Gael Garcia Bernal I mean, but I, I kind of feel he's wasted in a lot of western cinema because he's that sort of exotic Mexican that everyone wants to sleep with, which I'm happy with because everyone wants, does want to sleep with him and I do agree with that because I kind of want to sleep with him too, but I think uh, the point is he should, you know there should be something more and his actual Mexican cinema, he's gets to do a lot more than just be that exotic presence. So I was a bit disappointed with how he's used here, but still, other, other than that, it's a really, really clever film. I really liked it. 
I think he had a bit of a thankless role. But having said that, I think everyone in this film who wasn't Gyllenhaal or the young boy had a bit of a thankless role. I think this is her best performance, save perhaps Crazy Heart, which I really did enjoy. Um, I will say regarding uh, some of Chris's criticisms that it was a little subtly creepy. I think that was some of the best parts of it. I think it was absolutely going for that. In terms of the going full pelt towards the end, I agree there was a big jump in that regard, but I think they did establish it and lay the groundwork for that throughout. I don't think it was an illogical place to go. I think it's a little more extreme for what else we saw, but it wasn't nonsensical, so I didn't mind the ending. It wasn't completely nonsensical, but it was hard for me. Like, I could see it happening, but I wasn't completely sold. I thought this is still a bit of a jump based on what you've established about this character so far. But the bigger concern for me was that it just didn't seem necessary when I feel like the film was operating on a more clever level. Lastly, well, Virat said... Uh, <laughs> that uh, it's funny how he was talking about English teachers because while I was watching this, I was thinking she's not like any kindergarten teacher that I've met, but she's like a lot like an English teacher. Many English teachers that I've encountered, actually. Uh, talking about uh, the you know the final moments and whether it takes a turn for the worst. One of my favorite, actually, the favorite scene in the movie was this sort of closer towards the end, but not the final scene. Probably the second last scene, and you'll see when it comes. It's such a bittersweet moment. You're laughing at the scene because it's a hilarious scene, but also it's, it's, that was really clever. It, it, it's I think emblematic of the entire movie as to how you're supposed to feel. Uh, this is actually a very clever film because actually there's not much to do with this premise. I mean, you could go wrong with this premise in so many ways, and yet that the film does hold your attention by being so restrained for so long as it does. I think it's a big credit to how the movie actually succeeds. It's a very good directorial effort. Uh, so that was The Kindergarten Teacher, which will likely get a cinematic release in the coming months. And next thing we are talking about is Wajib. Wajib is one of the strongest films in the competition, along with uh, Leave No Trace. The competition has been notably weak this year, as we'll talk about on next edition on Wednesday. But um, yeah, this film is a slice of life about two um, Christian Palestinian men um, doing the rounds, handing out invitation letters to um, people for the son's sister who is about to get married. Um, I, I think my brain's a little bit frizzled out at the moment, so let's hear from Farad while I gather my thoughts. Look, this is an interesting thing because this is not a movie driven by plot. Like, you know, a lot of the movies, especially like, you know, when, and I know p people might be rolling their eyes as they're listening to this. Oh, it's, a, it's a not a plot driven movie. It's an art house movie where nothing happens. No, uh, no, it's it's not, and let, let's let's not let's not let's sort of get away from this distinction between plot driven and like character driven. This is a movie essentially, which is a very good nuanced social commentary about life in that world. But it is done through a very clever device about having to deliver these letters about the sister's wedding means that the father and son duo, who are actually in real life father and son as well, which actually does give them a very kind of slice of life sort of honesty to their interactions. You can see that these these two people really do are very comfortable with each other in stepping on each other's toes because a lot of the drama depends on them making each other uncomfortable, but not creepy or, you know, going stretching the limits. So it's like a rubber band. You stretch, but you don't break it. Yeah, the nuances of the father and son's relationship are really beautifully drawn out and I think very, very true to life. 
But the other thing that we haven't maybe pointed out enough about this film is that it's really funny. Um, <laughs> there's a, as Rut said after he saw the film, there's a great ISIS joke. I mean, how often do you get to see that in cinema these days? No, only in Archer, I think. No, no, honestly, and I, I, I don't say that it's, you know, politically correct or incorrect to laugh at this. It's genuinely funny. I mean, it's... And the fact that these people and, and these characters are able to make light of their own situation, uh, I haven't seen that. I haven't seen that kind of... And I think it had more of an impact because of how black and but genuinely kind of self-aware it is about what the context it's about. Uh, also, it's a very warm film. And I'm, I'm reiterating that with Panahi and now with this one. There, okay, the festival is overladen with a lot of bleak cinema. Okay, it's always the case, but Precisely so this year, where the thematic sort of overlong sort of sensation it leaves you with is numbness. I feel like you feel numb after a long day of films. But Wajib and Three Faces, these are films which stand out purely because they're so warm and they're trying to give you hope in a very hopeless world. Another thing about this film that's great is it real um it takes a non-heavy-handed approach to illustrating the problems in the region and by making the discussions of these organic to this intergenerational conflict between the father and son. While there still is, going with what Virat was talking about, a lot of warmth to the depiction of these characters, so they never feel like they're just mouthpieces for a like, pro-Israel, anti-Israel, or something like that. Um, it's, it feels kind of like um, you know the Darden film, Two Days, One Night, where there's the structure of we have to go around and meet all these people and uh, accept, take away the plot. But uh, it really, it doesn't, it's so, uh, you know, take away the um, structure of we have to do this before this or this will happen. Um, it's very just true to life in that way. And the humanity of the performances and the writing really carry it through to the end. As Virat said, it, it might sound from our descriptions like, oh, it's another art house, nothing happens movie that the boys from Film Fight Club are thrusting upon us. But no, um, I think this one can really be a crowd pleaser. It, 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 honestly, it, it's the funniest film uh, that I've seen at all festival. So... Just for that scene. So that is Wajir. The next one we're talking about is not by any means an art house film. Oh, it is actually, in some respects, that's a little unfair. This is Bart Layton's American Animals. This was the first non-American screening, the Australian premiere. This is a creative film. This is an original film. This is not a good film. I really wanted to like it. Um, and I think it was one of the... And this had its screening the other night. It is about the real-life event about 15 years ago where four young men, four friends, planned a heist of the most expensive book in the world among some other books. In, as the title suggests, America. It is starring Evan Peters, Jared Abramson, Blake Jenner from Everybody Wants Some was screened at the festival a couple of years ago, and Barry Keehan, who was in Dunkirk and Killing of a Sacred Deer. Now, this has a, this was described by the director who spoke after the film as a quote, weird hybrid film. I would agree with that. While it is most about 80% of dramatization of the events starring these actors, about 20% of it features interviews with the actual people who planned the crime as well as their relatives and some moments where they intersperse throughout the action now here's so it's a creative idea but it was not executed well the reason for that is that and it's unfortunate that each of the four interview subjects were more charismatic and enigmatic than the actors who portrayed them i would gladly have seen more of them or even reverse the dynamic that had 80 percent of them in the film and 20 percent of the performers the reason for this i believe and Leighton shed light on this in the q a is that he refused to allow the actors to meet with their real-life counterparts prior to filming because he wanted them to go off the script. And for that reason, you have, particularly from Kieran, a very subdued, melodramatic film, which is extremely problematic. 
Um, that's strange because if you're going to include, you know, include interviews with the real life subjects, then surely it's not a. The film does do that, right? You see the real people in the film. About twenty percent of the film is um, them recounting um, corresponding action within the dramatic, fictionalized, semi-fictionalized version. Right. Well, that seems very strange to me because I think the idea of you know create the character rather than basing it off somebody else is admirable. But if you're going to show the real people on screen, then the audience is constantly just going to be comparing them. So I, you know, that that seems just like a very poor directorial choice to me. I couldn't believe it. I mean, we saw. I didn't actually screen earlier this year. I didn't see it. But the fifteen seventeen to Paris, where he did cast your live actors, um, that was criticised apparently because the act the people in that film who were involved in the incident weren't especially good actors. It was clear from this that the interview subjects were particularly enigmatic people and could have played a much stronger role in the film. So I'm wondering why Leighton, who I know has a documentary background, didn't reverse the dynamic here. And um, there's a couple of really great moments in the film. I say a couple because there are only two of these instances where the, there is a fusion between the interview subjects and their dramatic counterparts, one where the main character is watching as they drive by to, about to commit the crime, another where one character meets another real-life counterpart in a petrol station. I'm wondering, why weren't there more of these? And when we had these interviews, they were teasing out the reasons behind this particular choice, this particular subject for the robbery. And it's so fascinating. And I learned so much of the Q&A, which I found so much more interesting than so much of the film. And I wish they'd taken the film in some of the directions that the could set the idea behind it had suggested. Uh, from what you're saying, it feels like it would work much better as a straightforward doco than this kind of hybrid style which is going for. I would have gladly watched this as a doco with a few moments. As we see in many documentaries, dramatizations of real-life events, um, the librarian in the film is played by Anne Dowd, who plays Aunt Lydia in it, and she was very good. I just wish she'd uh, had a more substantive, interesting role. Perhaps we could have had the film, as you said, you know, being done like the 310 to Paris, or, you know... Um, with the real-life characters involved in the crime playing themselves. Like in the film, Close Up, directed by Abbas Kiarostami. Shout-outs to Abbas Kiarostami, who we should have mentioned in Three Faces at the beginning of the film, because that movie is a beautiful tribute to him. If you like his movies, go and see the tribute by his protege, Jafar Panahi, Three Faces, moving on, uh, now that I'm finished plugging that movie again. Moving on, we are talking about a nice uh, segue there. We are talking about, last night we had an Iranian double. We watched Three Faces. The other film we watched was Pig. I think right. This this is well. This is a great segue, guys. Well well done for like bringing back Panahi and then linking back to Iranian cinema. This is almost seamless. Go see close up. Or taste of cherry, which also gets a reference in Three Faces. Talking of Three Faces, we do have Three Faces on the film Fight Club. Glenn, Chris, and myself. So it only makes sense. Works in so many levels. Three levels, right? And this is Saturday, which has three syllables, and there's three of us. Oh my god. And we're also all pigs. So speaking of of pigs. Pig. This is the new film which we saw at the City Film Festival. It, From Money Hagigi. Yes, it is about a filmmaker, an aspiring filmmaker who hasn't had the success that he'd want as of late. Because he was blacklisted, like Jafar Panahi, director of Three Faces. <laughs> there's a lot, there's a lot of crossover here, and in this, however, there is a serial killer who starts to target filmmakers, successful filmmakers at that. And this person, it's a satirical film, starts to wonder why have I not been beheaded. Amusingly, Mani Hagigi is one of the first to die in this film, and the characters actually attend his funeral. Uh, and, and actually, you get to see, like, it's actual Mani Hagigi's sort of decapitated face. So, in a way, it's, it's, it's a really, really funny film. Like, for the most half, for the two-thirds of this act, I really did enjoy it. I think the last act dragged a bit, and it became very conventional. But uh, it, it's surprising with how... I don't get to see... Iranian cinema is, is, I guess, kind of stereotypically loaded for 
making human dramas. But I, I'm really glad that satire is coming to the fore because uh, they also have a wickedly black and bleak sense of humor that works really well with satire. Not just satire, though. This movie is wacky. This is like Looney Tunes at times. Um, and, like anything can happen in these kind of surrealist sequences. Something I really appreciated is how much of the comedy is visual, like just close-ups of the lead's face at the right moment, you know, um, looking some kind of bizarre expression. His menacing face at the beginning of the film used as a shock, kind of funny end to a long tracking scene at a moment that before that it seemed like it was going to go in a tense direction. Um, it, this is the other great tennis film of the festival after In the Realm of Perfection. Um, there's a, a beautiful, hilarious way that... Um, the way that some people play tennis is parodied with, uh, you know, great editing. Um, yeah, it's visually exciting. It has a great kind of like absurdist energy to it. But I do feel like it's a little bit undisciplined and runs out of steam as it goes on. But I still recommend it as a funny and enjoyable, entertaining film. I would agree with most of what you said. I think every tennis sequence should be edited like this. It was very fun. Um, the only sequences that really stood out to me were the surrealist sequences. They were marvelous. There was a Luke, you must go to the Dagobah system type sequence, which I thoroughly enjoyed, including the ad sequences, which were semi-surrealist, which were thoroughly good. Um, there, This film does meander a lot, particularly in its third act, and I think there is distinct lack of payoff i feel they were going for they were trying for an understated message here whereas really in a film about filmmakers who want to be killed and want to be targeted you really have to go for a more impactful blunt message which i think they weren't willing to do which for me was counterintuitive but for the most part i found this quite interesting look it's, it's interesting that in, in a program that features john McEnroe's in the realm of affection we're referencing pig as the tennis movie to see so i think this is where we're at this is where the situation that we're at but i would agree with you all guys this is actually the best tennis movie the best non-tennis tennis movie if there could be one and also interestingly uh, the way this uses music is also really clever as chris was mentioning about visual comedy and i, I think we don't get to see a lot of that in mainstream stuff i was really happy if you like Edgar Wright stuff and using visual comedy, this is got reminiscent of that kind of style of things coming into frame, going out of frame in wacky ways. It's very surrealist, but also the use of music. And I would like to point out one particular song. It is Boney M's Ma Baker. So good. So good. How Ma Baker is used and the layers of actually, because if you know what Ma Baker is about, where, you know, the, the, the mother in this song is basically wanting her sons to get shot to save herself. If you look at that and what the character wants to happen to himself, uh, the parallels of that and how funny that is, it's a really good, you know, segue. But also, interestingly, the, the premise is very King of Comedy-like. You know, we have beginning where the person wonders why this, you know, about his own self-esteem and he wants to basically blister that by trying to do lots of crazy surreal things. It's a very interesting surreal film that works for the most part, doesn't quite hit the landing, but it's okay. I think in terms of that sequence, when we interviewed the Shen earlier, um, that episode is up on the Film Fight Club page. He alluded to the sequence. It's the best non-surrealist sequence in the film. That is Pig. The next, Yeah, the next film, just quickly, is Beautiful Things. Just quickly, because I don't think it deserves that much talk. This film is my only walkout of the festival, and I've watched uh, a bunch of bad ones. Um, it's a documentary that's about, ostensibly, our materialism and trying to make us Think about how much effort and what you know goes into um, the production of things and how our life is about things. Um, an examination of consumerism and waste is how it's built. It has a structuring device where there's documentary style um, scenes of everyday life that are focusing on how much plastic stuff and you know we have all lying around and the oil we use in our cooking. And then it goes into 
these sequences, which are folk examining people who work in the industries that provide these things to us. But um, the, the filmmaker allows these people to tell their stories at length in voiceover, but the stories aren't that interesting. And these are paired with scenes that try to um, overly aestheticize, um, you know, for example, working on a ship transporting oil or um, working at an oil refinery with like big overhead views. They're going for this really cinematic approach, but to me, it ends up being clinical and the combination of um, these overly aestheticized images and not very interesting storytelling becomes really wearying really fast. It gets worse than that though, because the film tries to be too clever about it, like into, like cutting up the ways that the, the subjects talk about their profession and making a song out of it. Um, it gets really heavy handed when you're hearing just some average working class dude being made a mouthpiece for the director singing a song about waste. Um, it, it doesn't feel right to me. It feels like a movie made for festival wankers, basically. Um, but if you'd like the film, I'm not saying you're a festival wanker. <laughs> we, do, we definitely love you, audience. We love you. Yeah. <laughs> that is beautiful things. You might be a general wanker, though, in which case we still like you. It's okay. We like you if you listen to our show. Yeah, we, we don't think you're a wanker. Please, please listen. Please listen and download the show on iTunes uh, and on podcasts everywhere. The next one we are talking about is Ant Timpson's The Field Guide to Evil. I said earlier there is an interview with Ant on the Celluloid Dreams page. This is an anthology of mythical folklore and horror following up on his ABCs of Death. He also made Turbo Kids and years back was screened at the Melbourne International Film Festival. This is a combination of Austrian, German and other folklore. There is a there is there's there are eight anthology series and it is fascinating that Timson gave them a brief each and there it was very general, but it is curious to note the number of recurring elements throughout this uh, including demonic imagery um ideas of sexual awakening and some of the thematic elements which have certainly pervaded um elements of classical folklore um several of these stories are very good uh the ones that had the most eerie imagery uh similar to the excellent film a few years ago the witch were the ones that stood out there were others that took the uh brief film much more literally and went for a more fantastical classical um really straightforward retelling of some of these tales. These weren't as engaging. But I'd say of the eight, four to five were uh, very much involving. And if you are a fan of anthology horror, of the two anthology horrors that screened at this festival, the other is Ghost Stories. This one is certainly superior. And if you are a fan of horror, please do check it out. And next we are talking about Daughter of Mine. Okay, so... um you know when you've just seen... Okay, maybe you don't know this experience because you don't subject yourself to the Sydney Film Festival challenge like we do. But if you are one of those people, you might know the feeling where you just start watching another bourgeois, middle-brow, mediocre, arthouse drama, and it's just, ugh, I really don't have time for this. You know, I've got to go and watch some Iranian meta odyssey instead. We've all been there. Yeah, we've all been there. And, uh, and that's Daughter of Mine. As soon as it just began, it was just like, oh, kill me. Uh, the Iranian meta odyssey is, by the way, Three Faces. If you weren't uh, already guessed, it's going to be a running theme of this episode. You just described my Friday night. So, um, yeah, Daughter of Mine. Uh, the, the first warning sign was realizing that it's the same um, dramatic setup as our punching bag of the festival, Tower of Bright Day. Don't say those words in succession. <laughs> say them three times or we're all in trouble. Yeah, um, it's about a, 
um, mother who isn't really the mother of a daughter, and as the, she, her daughter is interacting with the real daughter, sorry, the real mother, they're trying to, you know, she wants her to keep the secret, and she's worried that that the secret will come out. She's going to figure it out, or the other mother's going to influence her badly in some way. Um, but instead of going in the direction of nothing and nonsense, like Tower of the Bright Day, this becomes overheated soap opera. It is completely absurd um, by the end of the film. Okay, so instead of going in the direction of pretentious nothing like Tower of Bright Day, this instead is more overheated melodrama. Um, the climax is utterly ridiculous, involving um, characters making nonsensical decisions in the name of, um, I suppose, symbolism. It goes against the principal themes of the movie to end in some kind of vague <laughs> declaration of girl power, um, which makes the whole preceding um, back and forth yelling matches seem even more of a waste of time. Uh, I would say avoid. Uh, we could definitely see something else, one of which is Rockable, the new documentary from Australian documentarian Travis Beard. It is one of the four Afghani films playing at the festival, and it is about, it's a music documentary about Afghanistan's first and possibly only psychedelic metal band and hopefully not their last. And it's about their travails and their tours in Afghanistan, in Kabul and in the rural parts of the country and else. And their particular struggles given the political environment and an environment that necessarily predisposed in many respects to Western type music. In terms of music itself, it's fine. In terms of metal standards, it's all right, but it's more the story of the band itself and the particularly interesting uh, challenges to come up against. Most interestingly, we talked earlier in this episode about how documentarians insert themselves into drama and do it either well or not so well. This time it was done quite well. Travis Beard has an avowedly strong role in the action and is actually intimately involved, except that he is active in arranging gigs and elements of the... Um, of the tours and we learn more about this throughout it is an interesting documentary for anyone interested in the aspects of Afghani culture or metal itself and if you are engaged in those things then this is certainly one to seek out the next film we will be talking about is The Ancient Woods this was a nice change of pace it's basically a nature documentary um, in a slow cinema style no David Attenborough voiceover just gradual unfolding imagery of the animals um, around a forest in Lithuania. And seriously? Yeah, seriously. Um, it, it does a really good job of um, guiding you through this world in fairly, fairly subtle ways. The way that this film's put together is really interesting because it has immense sound design where you're hinted at what's about to appear in the next segment where you can hear sort of animal noises in the distance before the film then transitions to the next animal. Um, there, it has an incredible opening shot, which is an amazing work of overlapping imagery that builds an impressionistic view of all the different planes in this forest. Um, it's very much... It reminded me of 24 Frames, which is one of my favorite films of the festival that I haven't watched in this festival, and that um, you pick up on a lot of interesting and humorous things just watching the interactions of animals and the natural world. Um, I think it's a really great documentary. The last film we are talking about is Manto. Yeah, Manto, Manto is an interesting one. It's come directly from Khan from the Uncertain Regard section, and it's a wonderful, wonderful uh, biopic on 
Urdu languages, the greatest short story writers from the 20th century, Sadat Hasan Manto. Now, it's interesting, this is uh, directed Nandita Das's second film after Firak, and uh, it's a very nuanced take on, set in the era of the partition, which is a very tumultuous time. And the interesting thing about this movie is it seems like it's a story about a male writer slash maverick genius, but it's not. It's actually, I think Nandita's uh, crowning achievement in this movie is that she manages to make the women in this story a lot more interesting and they're not just serving as plot devices for our male protagonists to show writerly anxiety, which often these kind of biopics do become, to see how, you know, what kind of troubles and writerly angst this uh, male writer character has to go through. And Nandita, to her credit, doesn't fall into that pitfall. The female characters in this movie, uh, Mancho's wife, Sophia, played wonderfully by Rasika Dugal, has a lot of scope in showing emotion and really holding the family fabric together. But also what's interesting is the literary friendship between Manto and Isma Chuktai, one of uh, Urdu literature's great dame and short story writers, and seeing a very open kind of friendship between two people flourish and blossom on screen who are it probably in that society in the late 1940s and early 1950s India to see a married man and a sort of uh, woman having that kind of genuine friendship was really interesting to see. So the female characters actually are very interesting and it's not just focusing on the male protagonist which often these kind of biopics about literary kind of male writers can often become. So it's a really good and nuanced movie. It's playing once again tonight so if you want to catch it, it's an interesting watch. So that is our coverage of the films playing on the final weekend. For our last few minutes, we'd like to discuss our, our guesses of what will be, or estimated guesses of what will be the winners and grinners from the Sydney Film Prize, which will be handed out tonight. The closing night is the screening of Hearts Beat Loud, the new Nick Offerman and Tony Collette film. However, there is the 12 official films in the competition. I've been fortunate enough to see seven of them. Um, in terms of my favourite, I think the standard of what I've seen is absolutely of no trace, which we talked about earlier this episode. It is a marvellous one and certainly my top three of the festival uh, with a outstanding performances from a number of actors. I don't think it will win, though, uh, based on what I've seen so far. And, you know, it's a typical films that the Sydney Film Prize has gone to previous years. I believe The Seen and Unseen has a very strong chance of winning this year. I mean, we'll take it out. It has played a couple of times throughout the festival. It is the one of the Indonesian films that is playing, and that could very well take the top film prize. Uh, yeah, the competition uh, lineup this year was notably pretty weak from uh, from my perspective. What I what kind of snuck up on me this year was a wonderfully warm film called Wajib, which we've talked about before. It's it's definitely my favorite from the lineup, and actually was not on my radar when I initially was looking at the program. So when I went in, I saw it blind, and I was pleasantly surprised by how incredibly disarming, nuanced, and actually. Uh, you know, quite uh, effective it was in what it was trying to achieve. So that would be kind of my pick. What I think would win would be, uh, what I think might win would be probably Leave No Trace if it's uh, probably the most accessible movie or maybe The Seen and Unseen. But I, I hope The Seen and Unseen doesn't win because it's a very simplistic movie. But you're right, Glenn, it might just win. But I would hope Wajib actually takes a prize. I think in terms of... Leave the Trace, I think, could hopefully will do well. I think the dark horse for this competition is potentially Arga. Um, it's quite a beautiful film. I think in terms of the narrative, uh, it is a traditional narrative seen before, and uh, certainly there is not a great deal of dialogue, which doesn't necessarily always recommend the film, but as a dark horse candidate, Arga could certainly take it this year. 
Yeah, um, without having yet seen Aga, which will hopefully be fixed before next episode on Wednesday, so I can um, give more thoughts on the whole competition. Um, I think it's got to be Leave No Trace or Wajib if there's any sense of justice in the world. Um, I think those films stood head and shoulder over all the other ones I saw, but I agree with Glenn that I could easily see it going to the seen and unseen because that's a, a film that is made on a very low budget where I think um, that they feel the $60,000 prize could really help the director in a big way. And also, I think it's um, it goes with the mission that the, that the competition is supposed to represent, which is cutting-edge, interesting, unusual films. Um, and it's definitely going for something unusual, which will make it stand out from the rest of the competition lineup. We'll be back on Wednesday night with our full festival breakdown, including Black Klansman, Mirai, and some other films we've seen. In addition to our proper breakdown of the Sydney Festival Prize and the competition. This has been Glenn Fowling, like Chris Evans of Rotten Nehru. Enjoy the movies and enjoy the Sydney Film Festival.